Oh, Lord. Our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? That you are mindful of him. And the son of man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowns him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beast of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Friends, you should know there are two things that I pray regularly that God would do here on Sunday morning. I pray that God would be exalted and I pray that we would be humbled. God would be exalted and we would be humbled. Why do I pray that? Because until God is exalted and we are humbled, we will never be amazed by the mercy of God. And we will never be grateful for the gospel or live in the good of the gospel or care at all about telling other people about the gospel. God being exalted and you and I being humbled is the foundation for that. And that's why we need Psalm 8. Because Psalm 8 leads us in perceiving the height of God's majesty and in so doing leaves us undone by the depth of Of God's mercy. I think you can see that in the very first line of the psalm. First four words. Look at them. O Lord. Our Lord. I could preach this whole sermon on those four words. Because King David who wrote this psalm. I'm convinced. He gets one of the core realities in our universe. Namely, that there is a God in heaven and His name is Yahweh, the Lord. That's where we start. There's a God in heaven and His name is Yahweh, the Lord. But notice Yahweh isn't just Lord in some abstract, impersonal sense. Okay, The Lord isn't this mysterious spiritual force that all the religions of the world are are trying in vain to get their arms around. He's out there somewhere, the Lord, but we're not really sure where or what or how. No, He is our Lord. He's our Lord, which means you have a God in heaven, and you have a Lord in heaven, 
a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who relates to you in a very personal and particular way, namely as your Lord, your God, your Master. God isn't just there. He is your Lord and your God and your Master. He's God apart from us, but He's God in relation to us. And that's what Psalmate shows us. In nine verses, he shows us who God is apart from us, O Lord, and who God is in relation to us, our Lord. And I'm convinced that the, the divinely intended effect of this psalm goes something like this. If you perceive the height of God's majesty, then you will be undone by the depth of God's mercy. It's the way this works. If you and I can perceive the height of God's majesty, then we'll be undone by the depth of God's mercy. In other words, if you can see who God is apart from you, you will be amazed by who God is in relation to you. And I got two points from Psalm 8. So many times preachers have three-point sermons. I got a two-point sermon. Okay? Point one, our Lord is supreme in majesty. And point two, our Lord is infinite in mercy. Supreme in majesty, infinite in mercy, and all of that meets in Jesus. So let's start with point one. Our Lord is supreme in majesty. Look at verse one of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you're not familiar with the Bible, here's how names work. Names capture a person's essential character. Now, I remember when our oldest son, Ethan, was born, we decided to name him Ethan. And a well-meaning brother came up to me and said, well, well what does his name mean? And I, I don't know what his name means. Probably like lays bricks or something. I don't know. I just liked how it sounded. Well, in the Bible, names are more than that. Somebody's name captures their core DNA, their essential character. So when David says, Lord, how majestic is your name? He's saying that God's essential character is majestic. Okay, Webster's Dictionary defines majesty as very grand or dignified. Okay, usually used in reference to a sovereign power. So here's what David's saying. Lord, your sovereign power is very great. And he points out two ways we know that. Okay, two ways we know that our Lord is supreme in majesty. Okay, here's the first. Because his majesty is revealed in creation. Notice David doesn't just say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, period. What's he say? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, where? Where? In all the earth. In all the earth. How many of you have ever acted in a show or worked in theater? Just put your hands up. Yeah, wow, that's more than I thought. That's great. Yeah, well, if you've done that, I, I haven't, but I understand from good friends that do, and just from watching how this goes down, that if you're an actor or an actress, you have a role, a very specific role. Even if you're, quote, an extra, 
you know, I'm just an extra. Well, you still have a role to play. You're, You're on this set. You're being filmed for a reason, for a purpose. And the director's job is to make sure that you fulfill that role or else you're getting fired. Well, Psalm 8.1 reminds us, friends, that the universe we live in is playing a role. There's a part, there's a function that it serves. Namely, to reveal the majesty of God. That is the purpose of the created world. To reveal the majesty of God. Snow-capped mountains, Raging waterfalls, delicate flowers, coral reefs, all of it is there to point you toward the majesty of God. I love how David says this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Listen to this. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. There's no part of the earth that doesn't sing of the majesty of God. And their words to the end of the world. The created world reveals the majesty of God. But but notice what David says next. This is amazing. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory where? Above the heavens. Okay, so so think about that. This is why I wanted us to watch that video clip. Did you notice the distance markers? The bottom of that screen. Okay, well, case was hard to see. The distances in that movie were, were accurate. And they were measured in terms of the speed of light... Some of you are thinking, oh no, back to chemistry. I'm so ready for Christmas break. Nope, speed of light, which travels roughly 671 million miles an hour. 671 million miles an hour. And that video started on Earth and then zoomed out to how far light traveling that fast would go in one hour. 671 million miles. That was just the first zoom out. One day, one year, 70 light years, 100,000 light years, 1 million light years, 100 million years, 5 billion years, and finally 13.7 billion years. Traveling 671 million miles an hour, it would take light 13.7 billion years to reach our cosmic horizon. And God says, My glory is above that. 13.7 billion light years of space cannot contain the height of my majesty. Which is why I love the way that song we sang earlier uh, that Matt Redman, Chris Tomlin wrote. No eye has fully seen how beautiful the cross and we have only heard the faintest whisper. The faintest whisper. 
no surprise, David says in Psalm 145, 3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. We, we know our Lord is supreme in majesty because his greatness is revealed in creation. Okay, that's the first way soulmate helps us know that our Lord is supreme in majesty. But here's the second way it does that. Okay? God's majesty is revealed in creation, and it's also proclaimed through weakness. Okay, verse 2 of Psalm 8 is shocking if you get verse 1. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. Or as Jesus himself says in Matthew 21, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Okay, what's up with that? Well, in other words, the God whose glory far exceeds the heavens has ordained that his greatness would be proclaimed through the speech of what is weak and lowly and despised and of little value in the eyes of the world, of which babies and infants are a prime example. Those are the ones whom God has chosen, what is weak, what is despised, what is of little account, through which to proclaim that kind of majesty. You know, I I think about... My little one-year-old, Tyler, just had a birthday. And honestly, I don't even know why this says, out of the mouth of babies and infants you've established strength, because all Tyler does is babble. I mean, he, he can't even speak, really. It's just, ba 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 ba, you know, the, ah, screech and cry. And he can't even speak. It's, it's, it's so weak. His speech, his speech is so faltering. I mean, it's, not, it's not even speech. I've had years of formal training in pastoral ministry. And yet, there are times when I have a conversation with someone about Jesus, and I think I sound about as clear as Tyler. I do. You know, I'm also a dad. And there are times that I sit down and try to talk to my boys, three boys, about the ways of God, the things of God. And I listen to myself and I think, Williams, you don't even make sense to yourself. Like, like how is that going to make sense to them? How, how are they ever going to get this? You, you put two coherent words together. Friends, the God whose glory is above the heavens delights to proclaim his majesty through the weakest of human vessels. The weakest, starting with your mouth and mine. What's that? I mean, it's the pattern of the gospel, right? Strength through weakness, triumph through death, salvation through suffering. God's majesty is supreme, but he doesn't proclaim his majesty the way the world proclaims majesty. He, God doesn't, you know, build a palace or hire a marketing firm or take all his money and let's launch a new sports franchise and buy a cable network and we'll, we'll just go, we'll make this epic. I'll show them. No, what, what does he do? How does the creator of the universe reveal his supreme majesty? He's born in a stable in an insignificant corner of the earth where hardly 
anybody knows who he is. That should encourage you that if you feel weak and small and like a babbling Tyler, King Jesus is mighty enough to use your mouth to sing his praise. It's good news. The glory of God is revealed in creation, but it's also proclaimed through weakness. So, Paul says, where is the one who is wise? Good question. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, friends, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is is stronger than men. Listen, in the eyes of the world, a suffering Savior is not a picture of strength. In the eyes of the world, there's nothing glorious about a church full of people with all sorts of problems. By the way, we're in that number. And we're going to be 30 years from now and 50 years from now. Okay, but here's what God says. God says to the world, I beg to differ. I will establish my strength. I will perfect my praise through the word of Christ crucified and through the mouth of a people who believe on him by faith and don't stop proclaiming his name through their weakness and in their weakness till I bring them home. That's proclaiming majesty through weakness. And it's not just something God is doing out there or through Jesus. He's doing it now through us. He's supreme in majesty. Revealed in creation, proclaimed through weakness. But remember I said, perceiving his majesty has a point. It's an effect God's after. Showing us that. Namely, that we would be undone by his mercy. If you perceive the the height of his majesty, then you'll be undone by the depth of his mercy. Point two, our Lord is infinite in mercy. Okay, look at verse three. Verse three, this sets up the transition. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers. Go ahead and hold your hands out just so you can see them. I want you to think about what you made this week with your hands. Just your fingers. Okay, can't move your arms. Anything else? Just fingers. What are some things that you made? I was thinking about this. You know, computers, some people are getting smart. Well, I type on a keyboard. I can do a lot with that. Okay. I'm tracking. Right? So I just made a list. Paintings. Music. Food. I mean, maybe you could build a deck, take a long time, just fingers. You could design building plans, make clothing, build a website. I, I, I don't know what's on your list, um, 
but the heavens are not on mine. <laughs> I mean, maybe they're on yours. I... God says that the heavens, 13.7 billion light years of space, just my fingers. I say, what? I, I, I read that and it makes me think, Lord, what? Ooh, um, how about for Act Two? Use your whole arm. You know, let's, let's see what what do you do with your whole arm? If that's just fingers, what what can all of you do? It's amazing. Or look at the next line. I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Okay, another question. What, what have you set in place recently? What have you set in place? Well, I'll tell you this week. I tried to set a Christmas tree in place. <laughs> um, it was a chore. <laughs> you know, because you, you have to get it in the stands, and then, you know, you're under there, and sap's all over you, and, you know, your wife's like, no, a little to the left, you know, a little to the right, uh, didn't we just go right? You know, it's, okay, stop. You come out. Oh, dear, it's still crooked. Okay, you know, it's just, I couldn't even set a Christmas tree in place. And what does the Lord say? He sets the moon and the stars in place. Do you realize how really, really small and insignificant you are? Folks, but we like to think we're hot stuff. <laughs> we're nothing. We're nothing. We live on one planet in one galaxy. And God says, I'm greater than all of that combined. And I did it with my fingers. which is what makes the opening question in verse 4 so insightful, so appropriate. What, what does David say? What is man? What is man? Do you realize when he says that, he's not having a crisis of identity? Like, he hit 40 and, who am I? Buy a boat. You know, no. He's having a crisis of humility. It's not an identity problem. It's a it's a crisis of, of humility because in that moment, David, David looks up at the heavens. He considers the sovereign power it takes to set the moon and the stars in place. And he draws the only logical conclusion, namely, God, I am not impressive. I'm not. And friends, there are a thousand ills we experience in this life that would fix themselves quite readily if we could just remember that. That we are not impressive. Okay, you're not. I'm tempted to go around this room and just like look at each one of you in the eye and say your name. You're Ron. You're not impressive. Pat, you're not impressive. People's heads are going down. Don't look at me. 
Hey, Matthew, you're not impressive. I'm not. I'm small. And if you can remember that, that will guard you from spending your life trying to build and maintain an image of greatness in the eyes of your friends, your family, or your boss. When you and I become consumed with the fear of man, we are chasing an illusion. An illusion. Because you could work your whole life to make yourself as great as you possibly could be in the eyes of the world. And you know what God says? Good try, um, but you're still grass. You're still dust. There's something remarkably freeing about saying, I'm small and God gets that. We need to be good at saying that, church. I'm small. God gets that. Well, how do we know God gets that? Because of what he says in the rest of verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, right? Or the son of man that you care for him. Do, do you think of God that way? His, his glory is above the heavens, and yet he is intimately and personally attentive to every detail of your life. Okay, He's not just aware. He's not just observing. He's mindful. He's attentive. He leans towards you with compassion. One of the things that my wife, Eliza, likes to tease me about, give me a hard time about, is how much I'm willing to pay for good customer service. So I married a very economical wife. She's a gift to our family. Elise's chief concern in the purchasing process is how low can it go? Okay, I won't ask you to raise your hand if that's your approach. She married a man who doesn't walk into a store thinking, how low can it go? I walk into a store thinking, how much help can I get? Okay, because I don't just care about acquiring something. I want to be cared for in the process. I want a pleasant consumer-friendly, personally satisfying, Matthew-accommodating shopping experience. And nowhere do we run into this more consistently than the Christmas tree. Christmas tree is the point of this message, I see. So every year, Elisa says, Matthew Kroger is selling Christmas trees for 25 30 bucks. She get one. And every year I say, no, not going to Kroger. I'm going to go buy our Christmas tree from the Midlothian Ruritan Club. Yes, I'm going to pay twice as much as Kroger for the same tree. But the reason, babe, I'm going to do this is because, you know, you, you pull up to the lot, you open your door. Hello. Do you get that at Kroger? And, and then you get, you get out of your car and how can we help you? Oh, thanks for asking. You know, I was just looking for help. Um, we'll walk around. Here's a good tree. Here's a good tree. And. Yeah, okay, um, how about that one? Oh, that's a great choice, Mr. Williams. You know, they, they pick up the tree, they do a fresh cut on the bottom. You know, how many inches of branches would you like lopped off on the bottom for your stand? Um, you do like between six and eight? Okay. Would you like us to put it on your car? Yeah, you know, I'm in work clothes. 
that thing's covered in sap. Can we bag it in the string thing? Yeah, go ahead and do that. And um, how would you like it tied on your roof rack? Yeah, roof rack's good. And put it on the roof rack. And, you know, you drive in far because that'll change how many ropes we use. Well, just a couple miles. Okay, well, this should work. Um, you know, thanks for your support of the road dance. It, it's just a great experience. And you could argue that I'm just a self-centered dude who wants to be catered to. And if Eliza was not home with one of the sick boys, she would be nodding her head right now. But I like to think that I like good customer service, and I will pay for good customer service for this reason. A good customer service experience taps something that is hardwired into us by God. Namely, we delight, we find joy when someone is mindful of us and cares for us. And notice what the Lord says. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I think there are a lot of situations in life where it's very easy to feel like you're completely alone. And nobody gets what you're going through. And even the times when you try to talk about it to someone, you know, well-meaning friend says, how are you doing? And you start answering, you think, that just, that doesn't even begin to capture how I'm doing. I mean, you're trying to be honest, but you just can't get it out in words. And you feel completely alone. Does anybody know? Does anybody have the wear of the hurt? that I carry throughout my entire life. Friend, if that's you, if you're a widow, or if you've lost a spouse, or if you, if you battle a chronic illness, as Chris was praying for, I don't, I don't know what your experience of suffering is right now, but no matter what the situation is, I know this. The God who set the moon and the stars in place. He sees you. And he doesn't just see you. He's mindful of you. He's attentive towards you. And as he sees and as he's attentive, what he sees draws compassion out of his heart. To care for you. You may feel alone. But the God whose glory is above the heavens. Is watching you. And caring for you. You're not. A random file. On God's hard drive. You're before his eyes. Every moment of every day. I love how Derek Kidner, Bible scholar, says this. The right inference from his ordered heavens is not his remoteness, but his eye for detail. When you think of the heavens, don't think, how could he see? Think, oh, he is most able to see. 
most able to see. If he could build that, he can see me and care for me. And if you've read the Psalms, then, then you know that, that time after time, this is where David runs for refuge. When David's life doesn't make sense, he consistently goes to, God, you see. Lord, you know. This doesn't make sense to me at all, but you are mindful of me and you care for me and you've promised to do nothing but pure good to me. David runs there for refuge over and over and over again. Mind you, it's not because David or you and I are impressive, right? What was point one? Our Lord is supreme in majesty. He has no rivals. So why does he care for us? Because he's not just supreme in majesty. He's infinite in mercy. And he's mercifully given us two expressions of his mindfulness and care. First in verse 5. Second in verse 6. Look at verse 5. David speaks of mankind. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and and honor. Listen to this. Okay, listen to this. Despite your finitude and weakness, God has given you, friend, a measure of his glory and his honor by creating you in his image. Your dignity and worth, therefore, as a human being, never come from your accomplishments or your achievements. Upper-class Americans need to hear that pretty much every morning, okay? Especially if you fall in that category. Your dignity and worth as a human being, brother, sister, does not come from your accomplishments or your achievements or, I should add, your lack thereof. Your dignity and your worth as a human being comes from your creator who in his infinite mercy has imprinted his image upon you. And nobody, including yourself, can take that away from you. Okay, so the next time you find yourself thinking that that you must be an accident or a mistake, Or an aberration. Remember this. God made you glorious. God has bestowed honor upon you. That the next time that you are tempted to hurt yourself. Could be through cutting. Could be through drugs. We we can hurt ourselves in all kinds of ways. The next time you're tempted to think. I'm worthless in their eyes. I'm worthless in my eyes. Therefore I will. Stop. Remember. You're glorious. You are clothed in honor. And by the way, you don't even have to be a Christian for that to be true of you. You can be very small in your mother's womb. And that's true of you. The eyes of the Lord, every human life is inestimably precious. Because in his infinite mercy, the 
the supremely majestic one, has given us the dignity of bearing his image. Here's the second way he's shown his mercy to us. Look at verse 6. You have given him, David says, of man, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. There's a lot of things in that verse. The most important are that the world we live in, it isn't ours. It's not. Notice what David says. There's the possessives in there. You have given him dominion over what? The works of your hands. Do you realize that the provisions that we enjoy living in this material universe are not yours by right, but they're yours by gift? Every material blessing we enjoy, everything that you are hoping you will receive at Christmas, because you're so excited to hold it in your fingers, is entrusted to us by the fingers of the one who made it all. That means when it comes to living in our world, living in our environment, Christians should be the most responsible stewards on the planet. Okay? Unless you think, Matthew, are you telling me to join the Sierra Club? I am not. Okay? I'm simply saying that dominion is not a he-man abusive thing. Ah, dominion, kill everything. No. No. It's a stewardship. It's a stewardship. And the responsibility of stewarding and enjoying responsibly this material world that God's made is a tremendous expression of his mercy. But it's a stewardship. We have to remember that. It's God's world. He's given us the dignity of bearing his image, the blessing of stewarding his creation, and all of that reflects his mindfulness and his care for us. Lest we miss it, I'll conclude with this. There's a third expression of God's infinite mercy in Psalm 8 that I don't think even David envisioned in full. Even though he wrote verses 5 and 6, because Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that the man toward whom God is mindful, the son of man, for whom God ultimately cares, isn't limited to you and me. Okay, verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 8 point to Christ, the perfect God-man who would be and do for you and me what we could never do for ourselves. Look at Hebrews 2. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Sound familiar? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, okay, who's the him? He left nothing outside his control. Wait, that doesn't sound like me, correct? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, 
because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Friends, the message of Christmas, the the scandal of the incarnation, is that God himself for a little while would come down to live as one of us. God himself for a little while was made lower than the angels, born in a manger. Why? Why? So that he could bear our sins and carry our sorrows and die in our place so that all who trust in him could receive the gift of eternal life. That's why. And having won our salvation, Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and honor, waiting for the day of judgment when all things will be brought in subjection to him. So, Christian, don't lose heart. Because God, if you are a Christian, has by your faith in Christ united you to Christ. Listen to what that means. It means that God can now no, be no less mindful of you then he is mindful of his son, Jesus. And your God can no less care for you than he could stop caring for Christ. That's what that means. That's why you shouldn't lose heart no matter what you're, you're going through right now. Because right now, things in your life are out of your control. They are. If you think they are, you're deluded. They are. They're out of your control. But even the most painful among them are firmly within his dominion. Jesus' dominion. If you perceive the height of God's majesty, you're going to be undone by the depth of God's mercy. And there is no greater expression of God's mercy towards us than the mercy that we have been shown in the life, death, and resurrection Jesus Christ. What's that mean? What's Psalm 8 mean? It means that God's majesty is merciful and his mercy is majestic. Which is why David ends by saying in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I ask right now that wherever we spent this past week thinking that we were impressive, that you would humble us right now. God, thank you for your word that exalts your name and brings us to a point where, like David, We are forced to say, what is man? That you're mindful of us. Father, thank you that your mindfulness and your care went all the way to the cross. And that your mindfulness and your care didn't leave until you said it is finished. And that now, Lord, through faith, through union with Christ, your mindfulness and your care quiet our restless hearts 
by reminding us of your supreme majesty and bring peace to our anxious souls by assuring us of your infinite mercy. Leave us amazed. Make us grateful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.